All right, good morning, everybody. It's a joy to be with you again, and we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We're all the way up to chapter 5, and uh, when we hit chapter 5, something pretty significant is going to happen in, in the way the Gospel is unfolding for us, and that is Jesus is going to now openly claim, publicly proclaim, that He is God, that He is the Messiah come to effect the work of redemption. As Steve said, uh, many of the people were looking for the kingdom to be set up right then. And so on that Sunday that in the church calendar we celebrate as Palm Sunday, many of those folks waving branches and saying, Hosanna, uh, were soon some of the same folks crying out, crucify him, away with him, right? Uh, so we're going to see this tension begin in chapter 5 and all the way up to the crucifixion of uh, now opposition beginning to Jesus Christ. Our story this morning is as much about what the gospel is not as it is what the gospel is, as we see Jesus clearly revealed as God the Son, but we see some folks struggling to understand how is it that we can be rightly related to God. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we come to this time of study. Dear Father, if you were to count our iniquities and hold us accountable for them, who could stand before you? And the answer is, of course, not one of us. We are people in need of your mercy and your grace, and we thank you that in the person of your Son, who has accomplished the payment for sins and rose from the dead to declare his victory. We, we know that we have forgiveness and we have mercy in Christ. We are dependent upon your word to help us to understand better who we are and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And so we pray that you would use this word to minister to our lives today. Uh, we, we trust that you know every heart and every need, and we pray you, by your spirit, you would use the word of God to minister to our needs, to draw us close to you in our walk and help each of us to take that next step that you're putting in front of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled the story we're going to look at here in chapter 5 as Pool Power Politics. And I want you to think about pool power, and I want you to think about power politics because they're both going to be involved here in the story of the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In our culture, we have uh, quite a number of superstitions, kind of silly superstitions that we've picked up over the years. If I start this, you can probably finish it. Find a penny, pick it up, and all the day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, cross your fingers when you make a list, a wish. Um, having your lucky rabbit's foot, and you've got to rub the lucky rabbit's foot, right? Um, knock on wood. Um, Here's one that my grandfather used to rebel against. The, the superstition was don't plant your potatoes in the dark of the moon, you know, when the moon's in the dark phase. And he would tell my grandmother, I'm not planting my potatoes in the moon, I'm planting them in the dirt. So he did not care about that, uh, that superstition. Or here's one from southern Indiana. Um, if you have a wart and you want to get rid of it, which would be every wart you want to get rid of, right? The way to get rid of it is you take a potato, you cut it in half, you rub the cut edge of the potato on the wart. Everybody following me so far? You heard this one? I bet you haven't heard the rest of it. You wrap that potato piece in a dirty dish rag, 
and you bury it in your garden and you forget about it. Guaranteed to get rid of your warts, right? Well, these are just silly superstitions, but they speak to something in the human condition that I think is, is significant, and that is there are ways to access something that is good and we want, we want to come into our lives and ways to avoid things that are bad, that are undesirable. I think it's, in so many words, it's uh, their evidence of our desire to get back to the garden, to get back to the experience of shalom, that word the Jewish people use as a greeting. The Hebrew word means all of these things, not just peace, but well-being, completeness. Whole, it's like everything we lost in the garden to have that back again. And so that blessing, shalom, is a way of saying, I wish all of these things for you. I pray this blessing over you. And um, I think some of these superstitions are a way to, you know, get back some of that or avoid some of the negatives. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but the world is a broken place. The world is a hurting place. The world is a place where shalom is not being experienced. And in our text today, we're going to come across a couple of people, one person and a group of people, that are desperately seeking the recovery of this shalom, and yet they're trapped inside philosophies that are powerless to bring that shalom about. And these philosophies are still alive and well in our day, and I'll give you a couple of examples as we work through the story. But let's dive right in, in verse 1 to 3. We're going to see the setting of the story. And the setting, as you see here, and you might say, what, a pagan healing shrine in Jerusalem? Yes. The scene is a pagan healing shrine in the shadow, the very shadow of the Jewish temple in the time when Jesus walked and lived upon the earth. You'll notice here in the in the, and this is, a, this is a model of Jerusalem that's, uh, I don't know the proportions, but it's, uh, you can see it in the city of Jerusalem when you visit. They've got the whole ancient city rebuilt in a model. You can walk around it and see it. So you've got the temple wall here, the north wall of the temple, and just outside of it is this structure, two different pools known as the Pool of Bethesda, uh, the, the house of mercy, literally, it means. Here's a little closer look at those two pools. Let's read verse 1 and 2 because they're described here. It says, afterward Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. It doesn't tell us which festival it is because it's not the festival that's important. It's the actual day that's going to become an issue in the story. And inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda, Bethesda meaning the house of mercy, with five covered porches. So you have these porticos around all four sides and then one across the middle. And uh, so archaeologists have uh, done a lot of study and there have been recent uh, excavations in this area. And very interesting, in this place where Jewish people lived, where Jewish people worshipped at the temple just a few yards away, they've uncovered amulets and relics and uh, shrines in this pool of Bethesda dedicated to ancient pagan deities supposed to be related to healing. Apparently, the Jewish authorities, with a wink and a nod, were looking the other way, knowing this is going on. Probably the same people going to the temple for worship were coming to the pool of Bethesda, hoping by some 
some miracle to receive healing and wholeness. Now, there's a pathetic, pathetic scene here. Talk about the world being broken, the world being a place that's not the way it's supposed to be. We read here in verse 3 that there were crowds of sick people. And John gets specific and tells us what kind of afflictions they had. They were blind, they were lame, crippled in some way, or completely paralyzed. And they're laying on the porches or on these raised platforms around the pool. And it's this scene that is a scene not of shalom and wholeness, but of brokenness and pain and a picture of humanity, what, what sin has done to God's world. Now, there's a textual issue I want to talk about just real quickly here. If you're reading a King James Bible or a New King James Bible or a New American Standard Version of the Bible, you'll notice that there's a verse 4 in the text. And if you look closely at the New Living Translation, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. There's not even a verse 4. All right, did somebody do a typo or something? Well, no, there's actually an explanation behind this. Uh, in the earliest copies of the manuscript of the Gospel of John, and we obviously don't have the original copy that John wrote with his pen and ink, right? If we did, somebody would be worshiping it somewhere, no doubt. Uh, we don't have the original, but we have copies of the original. And the earliest copies of the original, there's no mention of what later became verse 4. It, goes, it looks just like it looks in the New Living Translation here. Uh, but in verse 7, there's a, there's a talk about the water bubbling up in the pools, right? So years later, because these copies of manuscripts, they were copied, and then copies were made from those copies. You know how the Bible came down through the, the, the generations and through the years. At somewhere along the way, a scribe looking at verse 7 saying, huh, the water bubbling up, probably knew something about the tradition and the history of the pagan practices, the pagan understanding at this site. And so the scribe added just in the margin on the side, like a note, or scholars call it a gloss, added this concept from verse 4, that an angel was believed to come down and stir up the water, and first person in the pool, after the angel stirs up the water, they would get healing, uh, but the number two is not going not to get healing, and so on, right? Well, as time progressed and these copies were continued to be copied, at some point, that gloss in the margin made it from the margin into the actual text of John's gospel, the copy of John's gospel. And so, probably not intended, written by John, but no doubt an, an, accurate, an accurate description of what people were understanding was happening. And isn't it interesting that in this place in Jerusalem, this place of not shalom, this place of brokenness, this place of a hopelessness, this is where Jesus, as he comes to the city on this festival day, this is where he makes his focus, right? Jesus, his very presence is shalom. The presence of God come to effect redemption for this lost creation. Now, he's not, as Steve said, he's not going to save it all right now, right? In this first coming, he came to lay down his life so that redemption and ultimate healing is available for everyone, but here he moves in among this pathetic, hopeless crowd. Instead of going to the temple to, you know, rub shoulders with the rich and powerful, with the religious power brokers. No, 
Jesus moves in among the broken and hurting. And he focuses in on one individual. Let's read about it in verse 4. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Now, in the ancient world, the lifespan of a man, average, was about 40 years. Think about that, guys. You know, we've lived past ours quite a few years, Steve. 40 years. So this is a guy who for the the lifespan of a normal adult, the whole time, he has been dependent on others to care for him. He can't walk to go to the bathroom. He can't walk to go to the market. He has to be carried everywhere he goes. And this is before the modern conveniences and modern sensitivities to people with disabilities, uh, making, uh, you know, allowances and helps for them. No, Matter of fact, in the ancient world, people with disabilities would have been looked on as being under some kind of curse, like God's disfavor is upon you. 38 years, this guy has been living in this condition, and this day is, no, is, unlike, is like any other day. He's come to the pool of Bethesda. Someone's brought him there. He's lying there along with all the other sick and broken people, hoping for an opportunity to get to the water to be healed. Now, verse 5 says, when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Now, put yourself in this guy's situation for just a minute. This man that you don't know walks up to you, obviously sees you're you're in a hurt, right? And you're among all these other people, and he... Um, maybe Jesus said something that he knew he had been this way 38. Anyway, Jesus asked him this question, do you want to get better? <laughs> do you want to become well? It's an amazing question. It's, it's a question that should have an obvious answer, right? Well, Jesus is not just asking for information, and he's not just, you know, I'm not going to do a miracle for you unless you tell me you want this miracle. No, Jesus wants to put on display by this man's response to the question what it is in which he is trusting, hoping for his healing. And so he asked, do you want to be well? And look at what the man says. Then verse 7, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Here is a man, likely a Jewish man, probably been taken to the temple for worship, probably believed in the God of Israel, but here's a guy who believes in pool power, right? He believes there's something magic in the water, and if I could just get into the water after the angel apparently stirs it up, I would be made whole. He's thinking that the power of God for healing and for the recovery of shalom can be manipulated by some kind of magic incantation, some kind of mysterious angel swimming in the pool or something. It's it's really a bunch of pagan mumbo-jumbo. But he comes out with this statement. He is a person, and he may be a little embittered. You can just, you read his statement here. Well, I can't, sir, because... I don't have anyone to help me get into the pool. He might be trying to manipulate Jesus. Would you give me a hand? Yeah, get me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Maybe a bit of a victim mentality. 
we can certainly understand after 38 years lying prone and being completely dependent on other people that he would have this kind of response. But it's interesting. He, his belief is the power is over there in this physical location of water. Hey, that sounds silly. It's a superstition. Well, that superstition is alive and well in our day. There are still individuals convinced that they access the power of God through their physical touch to a physical object. Here's one just this week. This is in Rome. These people are crawling up the stairs. Uh, these stairs originally were in Jerusalem on the, pile, the palace of Pilate, the Roman governor. And they are the stairs, supposedly, that Jesus walked up uh, when he was going to his trial after being beaten. The drops of his blood falling on the steps, apparently the marble, there are still indications of places where Jesus' blood fell. Uh, Constantine's mother, when when they converted the Roman Empire to Christianity in the 300s, had these steps carved out of the palace in Jerusalem and brought to Rome, and they've been there ever since. And uh, the, over the centuries, pilgrims have come to see the steps, and they crawl up them on their knees, repeating prayers, asking God for His grace. After a while, so many knees had touched the marble, they had to cover them with wood uh, because they were wearing away the marble, and you don't want to wear this holy relic away, right? So they, they covered it with wood, and just this week, they took the wood off of the marble stairs, and they found stuffed into the cracks in the, in the wooden steps, over the marble steps, notes and prayers and people essentially asking God for His favor and believing that if they prayed this prayer in their kitchen, it wouldn't have made any difference, right? But the fact that their knees are touching the holy stairs where Jesus may have walked, that will get God's power to us. Uh, this kind of superstition is alive and well. Here's another one. This is from a headline just yesterday. Apparently, a French priest, his heart, he's uh, been gone for 150 years, but his heart is now making a world tour, and we are blessed here in the U.S. to have this heart making the rounds. And apparently, people go to view the heart. Perhaps they're able to touch the container it's in or something. But this superstitious idea that by touching, by being in the presence of something like this, that somehow the, the need I have in my life is, is going to be met. Now, people are well-meaning. People are really hurting. People are sincere, no doubt. But it's silliness. It's very similar to this man believing, if I just get in the pool when the bubbles come up, then God will heal me. Here's another one, United States culture, very interesting as the percentage of people who claim no religion, which is now equal with Roman Catholicism and evangelicalism in the United States, stats this last week, equal percentage of people saying, I'm a nun, I have no religion at all. Among those nuns, they're not N-U-N, N-O-N-E, okay? Among those N-O-N-E's, there's a rising interest in witchcraft and spell casting you can, and crystals and uh, all kinds of things that go along with it. I won't say anything about essential oils because my wife and I enjoy those very much, but there is a bit of some of this mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus going on with that. So this, this human idea of 
of a, a superstitious way that we reach God and his power. It's, um, it's still alive and well, right? And that is this man's, that is this man's plight. One commentary says, there was so much confusion spewing out of this man's mouth as he talks about the water bubbling up. Jesus doesn't tolerate it. He just speaks authoritatively to him. Look what he says. (laughs) Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Three clear commands. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, there's nothing said about this individual's faith. There's nothing said about his sins being forgiven. It is just the sovereign command of a gracious God reaching down to one individual in this brokenness, the brokenness of which eventually all of it's going to be cleared away, but he's speaking to this one individual, gives him this command, and look at the fascinating result. It's immediate, immediate. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat, and he began walking. You talk about proof that God is present. Isaiah 35 says when the Messiah comes, blind people are going to see, the deaf are going to hear, lame people are going to leap like a deer. And here's a man who had to be carried in on a mat. Now he's carrying the mat. He's completely healed. Truly, the lame person is leaping like a deer. And it's proof, salvation, shalom, redemption, rescue, it's in this person, Jesus. It's not in this magic water. What a beautiful story. What a fantastic ending to the story, right? Problem is, the story's not over. (laughs) There's a problem not with what Jesus has done, but when he did it. Let's continue reading here in in verse 9. Uh, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Now we're going to get more conflict, right? The story continues. And the conflict is going to become intense. John makes us understand what Jesus did is going to cause a commotion because he did it on the Sabbath. So look at this in verse 10. The Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. It's unbelievable. 38 years, and they're concerned about one day, right? They can't see the miracle. They're not rejoicing with the man. Isn't it wonderful that you're walking? They're concerned about their rules that he's breaking. You say, well, wait, doesn't the Bible say don't work on the Sabbath? Yes. And that command in Exodus is about stepping aside from the customary labor that you would be involved in. If your job was a baker or a a doctor or whatever it might be, then on the Sabbath, you would step aside from that pursuit and not do that and reflect on God's goodness and rest and worship, right? By this time in history, though, the Jewish rabbis had so nuanced and developed and massaged that law that they were now... 39 categories of work that you could not do on the Sabbath day. This is one of them, carrying something from one place to another. The original law never intended this. They had carried it to this extreme. You see, these Jewish leaders, they are attempting to manipulate God in another way, not by some magic superstition about water, even though they knew about that one, no doubt, and were turning a blind eye to it. 
but rather manipulating God through the keeping of religious rules, through legalism. They tell this man, you are breaking our Sabbath law. And notice the response now, verse 11. It's very interesting. It doesn't cast this guy in a good light. He says, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. In other words, I did, it's not my fault, right? I'm happy to be healed, but not my fault. He told me to do this. So he sort of throws Jesus under the bus. Look at their response. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, this is fascinating, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Now, we have to step aside for just a minute here because it sounds like Jesus is saying, you got this affliction because you were sinning, so stop it because you're healed now, and if you do it again, you're going to have something even worse. That uh, is tempting, right? And uh, if we read on to John chapter 9, there's going to be a story about a man born blind, and the disciples ask Jesus the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he would be born in this condition? And Jesus said, you can't make that cause and effect connection. All the brokenness in the world is because of human sin, but it wasn't him or his parents. This happened so God's glory could be, right? Remember that story in John 9? We'll get there in a few weeks. So is Jesus contradicting that now? Well, I, I don't think, now the Scripture clearly says there are sins that have consequences that lead to suffering, that lead to death. But Jesus is in no way making the connection, your disability is because of some sin you committed. I think Jesus is talking about a deeper sin than some, uh, some, something we might think about. The sin he's talking about is the sin of unbelief. He is rejecting the witness of who Jesus is. He just had this perfect revelation of it. I'm healed. I'm the lame man leaping like a deer. And Jesus is saying, stop disbelieving or something worse than 38 years on a mat may happen to you. Something like separation from God for all eternity. He's saying, stop doing that sin. Believe in me and who I am. Look at the man's response. He throws Jesus under the bus again. Verse 15, then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And they have their man and they waste no time in finding him to bring charges against him. And here we see this confrontation that's going to continue on through the book of John. Verse 16 says, they began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Again, not God's law, but their 39 categories of breaking the law that they had added to God's law. That's religious legalism. We keep these rules. God, you owe us certain favors. Well, we're out of time here, but let's conclude the story reverses when Jesus makes a stunning claim. Look at what he says in verse 17. Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. You guys want to talk about working on the Sabbath? Let me tell you who works on the Sabbath. He says, God, my father. Okay, there's, there's strike one. 
You just called God your father. The Jews would refer to the fatherhood of God, but no one gets to say individually, he is my father. Jesus clearly says, no, he's my father, and he's working on the Sabbath. Who do you think is keeping the world going on the Sabbath day? God doesn't cease his providential activity in his creation. He is working. And the Jewish rabbis had found a way around this. They said, you know, God, uh, God is the highest that there is up in the heavens. He can't lift anything to the, a greater height than himself. So even if he lifts something, it's okay. And God is everywhere. So he can't travel from one place to another. So if he's carrying something, it really doesn't count because he's everywhere present all at one time. So the Jews were good with this fact that, yeah, God is working on the Sabbath, maintaining his creation. But here's Jesus saying, and God's essential work of redemption, I am involved in that with him because, in so many words, I am God. So, you know, if Jesus is not God, he can't save anyone. And so this affirmation that Jesus makes, I am God the Son, carrying on the redemptive work of God, and you guys can't see it because of your legalism. Well, the story doesn't end here. It actually begins more conflict. It says here in verse 18 that they're now trying all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. A few weeks ago, we a couple of times referred to the difference between the religion of doing and the religion of done. And there are really only two in the whole world. And people in the religions that emphasize you must do these things, keep these rules, live this certain way in order to get God's favor and be forgiven of your sins, they're like these Jewish religious leaders attempting to manipulate God, save us the way we want to be saved. The power of God comes in response to our keeping of the rules. The truth of the gospel is that we could not keep the rules, (laughs) Even when we try, we cannot perfectly keep the rules. And so God had to do something for us, and that is indeed what Jesus came to do. So here's the simple lesson, folks, that I want you to take with you today. True shalom that we're all longing for. We all want to get back to the garden, right? That's not found in superstition or religion. It's found in a person, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life we cannot, could not have lived and died a death in our place that none of us could have offered. He is the God-man, and he rose from the dead to prove he is everything he claimed to be and everything that his miracles evidenced that he is. So I close with this question. In what or whom have you placed your trust today? Some superstitious mumbo-jumbo or some religious law-keeping I invite you to come and find true shalom in the person and finished crosswork of Jesus Christ today. Listen to Jesus' words. Stop sinning with unbelief or something worse will happen to you. And believer, all of us today, brothers and sisters, we should read this story, seeing these two things the gospel is not, and rejoice that in God's mercy and grace to us, We have come to know the one who is the prince of shalom, the the prince of peace, and we've been declared perfect in him, accepted in God's eyes, 
not because of our access of power through some means, but because of what Christ has done for us. He's provided for our salvation and our ultimate healing, the return to ultimate shalom. And so, brothers and sisters, rest in Him today because in Him is the power of God for every good thing we need in life and for the life to come as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the powerful and clear stories of Your Word. We thank You for uh, the life that the Lord Jesus lived. His actions and His words reveal to us Your very heart, Your very nature. And thank You for the mercy and grace that comes to undeserving people, even this man who apparently did not reciprocate in faith. We thank You for showing us Your mercy. And my prayer, Lord, is that everyone here this morning would be believing, that they would stop the sin of unbelief, would believe who You are based on all You've done and revealed Yourself to be. They would come to know You by faith. We come to rest in Your grace and forgiveness. And for all of us, Your people today, may we be reminded once again of all that You've done for us and that In and of ourselves, we have no hope to commend ourselves to you, but that through your grace and through Christ's death and payment for our sins, we are declared perfect, accepted in your beloved Son. We give you our thanks for these things. Amen.